Be seated. You're looking at the 8.30 crowd. Not afraid of the wind and the rain. Nobody melted on the way in. Oh, that's always good. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Esther, the ninth chapter, Esther chapter 9. Coming down to the end. Say, what could more, what is there more that could be said about Esther? We've been following uh, the uh, biblical narrative, the historical narrative throughout the book. Uh, there was a king of the Persian Empire, uh, King Ahasuerus. Uh, he had a, a big party. And uh, they were all drunk, and he wanted his wife, Vashti, to come in and show her beauty uh, to all those drunken men. She refused to do it, so he fired her, removed her, uh, signed the law that said she would no longer come before the king, ever. And, <clears throat> and then he sobered up, and he thought, you know what, that was a dumb thing to do. Why did I do that? But he couldn't undo it. could not be undone. So they had a party. They had a contest to pick a new queen. Esther was chosen. And as, a res- as she went and got into her duties, Mordecai uh, was sitting at the gate and uh, uncovered a plot. And then the king, uh, was, his life was saved. They entered it into the Chronicles, but he was never rewarded. But he didn't get discouraged. He didn't get upset. He just he wasn't doing it for a reward. He was doing it because it was the right thing to do. Went back to the gate, went back to his business, went back to doing his duty. In the meantime, wicked Haman, the number two most powerful man in the world, uh, set on his sights to destroy not just Mordecai, who he hated, but the entire race of the Jewish people. And again, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Anytime you see in the historical narrative or the biblical historical narrative the design to eliminate the Jewish people, that is, uh, we saw that in Egypt when Pharaoh was going to kill all the, ba- all, the, all the babies two years of age and under. And in Matthew, where Herod was going to kill all the infants, uh, infant boys two years of age and under. What is that? That's a, that's a desire a designed by Satan to destroy salvation. Because if there is no Jew, Jewish male, there will be no Savior. And that's Satan's design to try to try to keep that salvation from you. Satan is not your friend. He is not. Again, anytime you see that in history in the past or in history in the, what is going to be in the future, what is going on in the Middle East today? Eliminate them all. Uh, what, what is that? All the Jewish people. That's Satan's design to, uh, to, to thwart God's plan. So... Uh, that plan came to light, uh, Haman had built a gallow, 50 cubits high, and <clears throat> the king got up, couldn't sleep that night because Esther wanted something from him, uh, wanted the life of their people. And the king uh, came to the banquet, and uh, before he came to the banquet, well, the, the first banquet he came to, and he, she wouldn't tell him, and so he went home, and now he's bothered, and he can't sleep, and he said, bring the chronicles out and read them to me, and what page did they turn to? The page about Mordecai. And the king said, what was done to him? What, what, what honor did we bestow him? And they said, not, there was nothing done to him. <gasps> Horror of horrors. I mean, what do I do? The king is beside himself. See some movement out in the lobby. Who's out there? Well, Haman's out there. Haman's out there to come in to ask the king, give me, give me the head of Mordecai. I want to hang him on the gallows. Fifty cubits high. Seventy, some 75 feet that I built out in my backyard. He comes in. The king says, what should be done to the man that the king delighted the honor? 
Haman, who should the king delight to honor more than me? (laughs) I'll tell tell the king exactly what I want. I want his crown. I want his robe. I want his horse. (laughs) And I want to be led through the city so everybody can see me. And the king said, that's a great idea. Do it to Mordecai. And the air gets sucked out of the room. And he leaves. And he is now a doomed man. They come to the banquet. While he's still trying to process it, they go to Haman and say, hey, it's time to go to the banquet. They pull him. He goes into the banquet. He's just still trying to uh, process all of this. And the king says, okay, Esther, what do you want? And Esther says, I want the life of my people because there is a man who is destined to destroy me and all my people. And the king said, who would, who would dare do such a thing? That wicked Haman, that guy right there. What shall we do to him? And the uh, uh, chamberlain said, Behold, because you could see it from everywhere, the gallows which Haman had built upon which to hang Mordecai. And the king said, Hang him on that. And that's what they did. So the people have been, uh, the, the enemy has been destroyed, the last uh, chapter, uh, chapter 8. But they're still, they're still under death sentence. The law of the Medes and Persians is still in effect. So what they can they, what can they do? They can't counteract the law, but the king said, man, if you can think, see, if you can think or see of a legal way out of this, make it happen. I'll go ahead and write it. Uh, and wouldn't, wouldn't that be exciting, Brother John, if they said to you, uh, if we can figure out a way out of this, go ahead and write the law. I think you would say, I'll do that. I'd be up for that. And so Haman, uh, Morkei, I did. And what, basically the law that, he, that they passed, again, couldn't counteract the other, but it gave the Jewish people the right to stand up and gather themselves and arm themselves and defend themselves. And it put the power of the king behind Mordecai. The power of the king's uh, military and police force and all of that was on the side of the Jewish people. Now, you would think, who in the world, in their right mind, would want to stand up against that? And that's what chapter 10, or chapter 9, is all about. We come into the, to the ninth chapter. We have two competing laws, the one that says destroy the Jewish people, and the one that we said, that says the Jewish people can defend themselves. The Jewish people have the backing of the king Ahasuerus. Now, the, the new most powerful number two man in the world, Mordecai. And you would be foolish to go up against that. Most people, in the last part of chapter 8, verse 17, many of the people of the land became Jews for fear of the Jews fell upon them. So, chapter 9. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree grew near to be put in execution in the hope that the enemies of the Jews, in, in the day that the enemy of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt. And no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. And all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and officers of the king helped the Jews, uh, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. 
For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. Verse 5 is a reference to what we know now as history from a secular perspective. It is estimated on this day that 75,000 people in the Persian Empire rose up against the Jewish people. Say, so what, what would you do, crazy thing? And the Jewish people eliminated them. 75,000 people there lost their lives. Look at verse 6. In Shushan, the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. But it's not done there. Look at verse 15. Uh, for the, uh, on the next day, there were still uh, people that after the 75,000 were destroyed, after the 500 lost their lives, there's still a group of people that say, you know what? Uh, we're we're going to... From the river to the sea, we're going we're gonna to destroy all of you. And another 300 were eliminated. For the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day, also on the month Adar, and slew 300 men at Shushan. But on the prey, they laid not their hands. But the other Jews, verse 16, that were in the king's province, gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest from their enemies. Uh, verse 18 uh, last part. And on the 15th day of the same, they rested, made it a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 19, uh, the last uh, three lines of that verse. The month Adar, a day of gladness and feasting, a good day and of sending portions one to another. Drop down to verse 22. And the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, from mourning unto a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy. Uh, why is that? Verse 24, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had divided against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And they, and they were. And that, at verse 28, tells us that these events should be remembered to every generation. I'd like to bring you a message this morning from chapter 9 and other scriptures entitled this, A Foreshadow of Divine Judgment. A Foreshadow of Divine Judgment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help me uh, to make this connection uh, that we would understand that this passage of Scripture is not just a historical exercise, but it points to an event that has yet to unfold. May we be mindful of that. And Father, if there be one here or listening this morning that does not know you as their Savior, that they wouldn't be like the 75,000, uh, the 500 or the 300 that didn't have the sense uh, to come to you for salvation, but they would come to you in repentance and faith and uh, recognize uh, that uh, they have a sin problem. problem is not Jewish people, and the uh, problem is not church. problem is not God. problem is their sin. And may they flee the wrath to come at a certain. And we'll praise you 
uh, for their salvation throughout all eternity and for your salvation in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Hold your finger here and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. When the Jews look at a passage of Scripture, they understood that it has, they understand that it has a past significance, a present application, and a future significance. So what is the past significance? The past significance is what, what, what I have strived to do and what we are striving to conclude this morning. The past significance is the history of it. And that was in the introduction. What happened? Who are the names? Where did it take place? And that past narrative teaches the Jews a lesson. What is that? That God has been faithful to them in the past. It has a present day application for the Jewish people. Because as God has been faithful to them in the past, God will be faithful to them in the present. But to the Jewish people, it also had a future application as well. And what is that? That's a foreshadow of God's divine judgment. There is going to come a day when God judges the world. So we look at it today and we see, again, the events, the historical events. We say today in 2024 that because God was faithful to us in the past, God will be faithful to us today. But we should not neglect to look at the future. What is the future? As God has dealt with his, the enemies, of, and they are, they are at war with God. They would say they are at war with the Jewish people, but they are not. They are at war with God, God's plan, God's salvation, uh, the inheritance that God has given. They just, they, they're just not happy about it and never have been as you study that throughout uh, God's word. We're in Second Peter uh, chapter 3. Let's uh, start at verse 1. Now, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And so they, the scoffers, would look at Esther and say, Oh, please, preacher, that's, that's ancient Persian history. That has absolutely no bearing on us today or no bearing on the future. And I know people say from chapter 9 that it is a foreshadow of divine judgment. But seriously, preacher, there's enough years that have gone by that I don't think you're selling that to anybody. I'm not here to sell it to you. I'm here to, I'm here to warn you this morning. There is judgment coming. <clears throat> Verse 5. For, for this, they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Uh, God's not operating on your time schedule. He operates on his own. 
And uh, he's, he is going to bring it to pass. You can be confident of this. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. So why does he wait? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So in chapter nine, chapter 8, we see the law was passed, giving the Jews a right to defend themselves, and people had lots of time to consider that there was a, there was a new economy in the Persian Empire. There was a new leader uh, uh, above the people, and they should be paying attention to that. And many did. Many had fear. But there were many, 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 thousands and thousands and thousands who said, uh, we, we, just, we just don't see it. We just don't believe it. And so they took up arms against the Jewish people. Uh, to destroy them. And if you want to do more reading on that, I'd encourage you to pick up Herodotus. Again, just a lot of interesting Persian uh, uh, numbers and statistics that come from him about this particular uh, time frame. <clears throat> so the question is, why would, in, from chapter 9, why would anybody in their right mind go to arms against the, the power today, why, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody go against the king's order? Why, why would they do that? Well, here, here's a better question. Why would anybody in their right mind ignore the king of kings warning? God himself, that there is judgment coming. Uh, again, Second Peter chapter 3, that God's judgment is certain. And though there may be scoffers that say, it, it ain't, it ain't, it's not going to happen. Uh, that we would, why would, why would people ignore that to their own hurt? But they do. Every single, every single day. Why is the judgment delayed? Why is it delayed? Because God is long-suffering. God is long-suffering to usward. Again, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now look at chapter 2. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 2. Let's start at verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people. There shall be false teachers among you who privily bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves, what? Swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, the preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world on the ungodly, and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, don't miss this, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, <clears throat> and deliver just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And don't miss verse 9. <clears throat> Very similar. Okay, put your finger, if you want, in both places. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then look at that verse 9 of chapter 2. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. <clears throat> Interesting. What, what do we have? We have the impatience of men. 
And we have a tendency to look and say, how long, Lord Jesus? How long? Uh, We're not alone. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation, the sixth chapter, the ninth verse. Revelation chapter 6. Verse 9, we're well into the tribulation period. We're under the fifth seal. <clears throat> and let's see what the attitude is in heaven of the, the, the folks that have gone on before towards God's economy, God's long-suffering. <clears throat> we're in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. They sung a new... Uh, I'm in the wrong chapter. There we go. Revelation 6 and 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. It's interesting, the word rest is used. And in chapter 9, we pointed that out time and time again, the word rest is used. Chapter 9 of of Esther. So, don't, uh, don't get so weary in your waiting that you lose faith in the fact that God is going to provide a solution. What did Mordecai say to Esther? He said, Esther, you can go before the king. And Esther said, well, I can't go before the king. He hasn't called me. She, he said, you can. He said, but if you don't, don't you think that your fate is going to be any different than anybody else's? And if you don't, God's going to raise up somebody else to do that. It, it, Haman is a man of great faith. And even though it looked bad, and even though Haman had signed the law, and even though it looked like there was no escape, Haman believed God. He believed that God had created. He believed that God had sustained. He believed that God was going to sustain the Jewish people and keep his promise to bring a Savior into the world, the only begotten Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. So, uh, here's some statistics if you're a numbers person. Your chances of winning the lottery, 1.302.5 million. Yet, 33% of people in America today say their only hope for a comfortable retirement is to win the lottery. That is dumb, but uh, people do it. Your, Your chances of falling out of bed, You'll be happy to know this. Two million to one. Your chances of getting struck by lightning. 1.2 million to one. Your chances of getting bit by a snake. 50 million to one. A shark attack. 3.75 million to one. The chances of missing or hiding out on God's judgment. Zero. Zero. You're not going to miss it. You're not going to hide. The book of Revelation is pretty explicit on that. But divine judgment, nonetheless, is doubted. When Christians doubt divine judgment, they begin to lose hope 
in reality. So this chapter, chapter 9 of Esther, again, talking about the judgment that is going to take place right then, but also foreshadowing the fact that as God has been faithful in the past and God is faithful in the present, God will be faithful in the future uh, to, to judge this world. He will. God is going to bring it to pass. Yet when we doubt that as Christians, we lose hope that God is on the throne, that he is in control. We lose doubt that the enemies, the Hamans of this world, that have passed legislation and, you hear me, seem to be in power. Well, preacher, they, they are in power. They seem to be in power. Don't lose hope. They, they seem to have the upper hand. It seems they're building the gallows. Nothing, what could possibly go wrong with their plan? God. God. Don't lose hope. When we lose, when we doubt the final judgment, uh, we lose hope and we begin to doubt whether or not God will truly triumph in the end. But He will. He absolutely will. Judgment is real. In Genesis, and we read the passages, God sent a universal flood. And people struggle with this. They say, preacher, um, who, who was saved? Noah and his family. But uh, 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 sure, surely uh, uh, God saved the children. No. no. Uh, certainly God saved the um, uh, maybe some of the women whose, whose husbands wouldn't let them uh, go find a solution. N- no. No. God's judgment fell on everyone who refused. And that is a foreshadow of what is going to happen in, at the rapture, at the tribulation period. God's judgment is going to fall on everybody who has rejected his solution, his salvation of Jesus Christ. Everyone. Genesis, God sent a uni- universal flood. Who was spared? Those who trusted Christ. In the book of Esther, God sent judgment. Who was spared? Those that turned to Christ, those that put down their arms, those that surrendered. Joshua spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering, and he was sent by God to take possession of the land. The people of the land had 40 years of grace, and we're in Joshua on Sunday evening. But don't miss this, because when the people, people struggle with this, they look at that and they say, so why did they destroy everybody? They went into Jericho and they destroyed everybody. They, they destroyed everybody except for Rahab and her family, who in the midst of fear, who in the midst of doubt, who in the midst of saying, oh, we don't, God, God can't do this, our city is too strong. In the midst of all of that, she hid the spies, witnessed to her family, brought them into her, her place of belief brought them to understand that the Jews were coming and the only way to be safe was to turn to God. What is that? A foreshadow of divine judgment. Again, in Joshua's economy. Don't, don't miss that. The people again, of the land, again, had 40 years of grace. What does the Bible say about that? Joshua chapter 2, verse 10 says, Rahab speaking, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt, and what ye did to the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt, 
Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, for the Lord, for the Lord your God, He is a God in heaven above and the earth beneath. What was what was Rahab saying? We've been we've been afraid for forty years. The children of Israel absolutely could have taken possession at that moment, but they let fear, the doubt of God's ability to help them be the driving force in their life. Don't, don't do that. But the people in Jericho, they went to school, and, and they knew these are historical events to them. And they knew that the children of Israel had been led out of Egypt. They knew, they studied, uh, Rahab is talking about it, that the, the armies of Egypt had been destroyed. They heard about the successes uh, of the children of Israel, and for 40 years, they taught that in school. They know about it. It's in history. They know they're coming. And so when word comes to the king of Jericho that the children of Israel have sent spies into the city, man, they lock the city down tight. Where are they? What are they doing? What didn't they do? They didn't say, we believe God. They didn't say, we trust God. They closed up the city closed up their life, closed up their ears, and thought that they were going to be successful. Same in chapter 9 as the 75,000 men. The same in chapter 9 of Esther to the 500. The same in Esther as the 300. It devised common sense, but every day people choose Noah and the flood, Joshua and her king, Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned in the text as a place where divine judgment is coming, warning was given, and the people just said, you know, we're going to take our chances. Not just the, the heathen people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but what should have been righteous, God-fearing people. And certainly we can find ten righteous people. We got Lot, and we got Mrs. Lot, and we got his kids, and their husbands, and their children. Finding ten is going to be easy. But it wasn't. The Bible says, as Lot went around doing what I'm doing today, warning his family members to flee the wrath, to come, they, that he seemed to them as one that mocked. Say seriously, Lot, you, you really believe God's judgment is going to be on? Oh, oh, yeah, 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 it's coming. Hey, is this the same Lot that went drinking with us? The same Lot that went to the bars with us? The same Lot that told dirty stories at work? Do you see why the world might mock at a Christian who doesn't live the Christian life? You've embraced God's salvation, but it's important to live for God as well. well enemy, Haman and the enemies of the Jew, God gives a warning. And listen, God is long-suffering, not willing that anybody in Noah's economy would perish, not willing that anybody in the Persian economy would perish, not willing that anybody in... The wilderness economy should perish. Gave them 40 years to consider God is coming. Some listen. Again, Rahab. But the vast majority said, no, no. Our, our, our military, America, is going to withstand God in that day. You really think so? And you, you, don't, you don't read the Bible that I read. Not going to happen. Beware, beware. Beware, lest you sin away your day of grace. 
Thai people boarded a Bombardier Challenger 600 jet. Started at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. On final approach to Naples Airport, Naples, Florida. The pilot suffered dual engine failure and tried to land his jet on Interstate 75 coming into Naples, Florida. Brought it down, touched down. But I don't know if you know anything about Interstate 75. It goes all the way from the way tippy top in Upper Michigan all the way down through Ohio, all the way down. It's a major north-south route. It is a busy, a busy stretch of highway. And as fate would have it, not only was he trying to land, but there were trucks and cars and things that were trying to negotiate, and they had an accident. Did you imagine being the officer? A dispatch to an accident, uh, two, two uh, jet in craft, uh, engine aircraft and a tractor trailer have collided. Can't you imagine even writing that on your accident report? He tried to land. Collided with a truck and an automobile. There was a large fire, black, billowing black smoke. Believe it or not, of the five people on board, two perished, two survived. I say, people, there were five. We're still trying to figure out who, where the fifth person is. I say, if they haven't found them by this point, there's probably three perished and two alive. What are your chances of dying of a heart attack? One in six. Cancer, one in seven. COVID, one in ten. What are your chances of dying in a plane crash? One in 816,545,919. What are your chances of dying and spending eternity under God's judgment or receiving God's salvation? 100%. Every single person, for it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. But I got good news for you today. Divine judgment was cared for on Calvary. We wrestle with the number, 75,000, 300, 500, and we say why. The sheer numbers of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is interesting. An 1887 reference uh, says, it's not a biblical reference, but again, a secular reference says in a battle of Sodom and Gomorrah, not, not the one uh, where God rained down judgment, but prior to that, when the king, uh, Chalodomar, came down, that he brought an army of 800,000 to go to battle against Sodom and Gomorrah. And so if Sodom and Gomorrah was a little place, then why did the king need an army of 800,000 to bring them into to subjection? I would say there was at least that many in the army uh, that he was probably facing. It was, and that's just the men, fighting men, that's not women and children. A vast, vast number. We struggle with the flat, vast numbers. The flood, we look at that and say, well, you know, it's kind of the beginning of the world. How many people could there have been in the world at that time? Well, people, the numbers people have sat down and done the numbers. And uh, you read, depending upon who you read, they'll tell you that in Genesis, when the flood took place, there were somewhere between 5 and 17 billion people living on the face of the earth at that time. That's a, that's a huge number. 
The average belief is that there were 10 million people that perished on the, on the earth during the flood. And we read Revelation chapter 20. You're in Revelation 7. Turn with me to chapter 20. <clears throat> and we memorized this last year. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. And set a seal upon him. That's a great passage of Scripture. In verse 7, Satan's going to be loose for a little time. He's going to go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. How many? The number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And what did they do? And they went up on the breadth of the earth. And they encompassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And what happened? And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. What is that? That is the certainty of God's judgment. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. This follows the millennial reign of Christ. What is that? That's a thousand years of God's reign where there is peace. There is no shootings. And, and muggings and carjackings going on over in Washington, D.C. It's safe. It's going to be safe to walk on the streets of Baltimore and Atlanta and Detroit and even Chicago is going to be a safe place. And during that thousand years where Christ reigns and evil is kept at bay, what is going to be the response of the people? A number of whom is as the sand of the sea, and they went up on the breadth of the earth, and they compass the camp of the saints about. Even during that thousand years, they're going to say, I think we can take God. That's just dumb. That's just dumb. Earth history is known during the millennial reign of Christ. During the millennial reign of Christ, they will study the history of the tribulation period. It will be historical Reference. Be taught in school. What happened? Well, there were seal judgments, there were trumpet judgments, there were vile judgments. Who won? God did. Who's going to win after the millennial reign? God is. Uh, I don't think so. Who, who would do that? 75,000, 500, 300, 10 billion in, Lot's day, in uh, uh, Noah's day. You just don't see it. Last week we shared with you about Pastor Kevin Corey, assistant pastor at Calvary Road Baptist Church over on Beulah Street, had just accepted a pastorate down in Lynchburg, Virginia, and uh, put the house on the market, selling the house, and uh, was had some papers for just from his years there at Calvary Road. He put them in a big burn barrel. Papers don't burn well because you can't get air between the pages, and so he needed an accelerant. And you know from last week. That he went into the garage, got a gas can, metal gas can, and started to pour that on the flames. And the flames followed the gas up into the can, went into the can, and the can exploded. Now, just a moment, imagine for a moment what he felt at that moment when the gas covered his body and he was, he was literally on fire. His wife ran from the garage with a uh, with a rug and and physically put him out, burning her hands in the process. Tuesday night he died. Tuesday night he died. 
But Kevin Corey knew Christ as his Savior. So even though his last moments on this earth were him on fire and terror and burning, and for the last ten days or so, or for roughly seven or eight days, he was in the burn center over in Washington. They had him sedated because burned over 80% of your body, gasoline burn. I can't imagine what that would be like to be awake. And so they had him asleep, and he was, he was comfortable. But, obviously, that's catastrophic injury, and he could not survive. His funeral will be this Friday, 1.30 in the afternoon over at Calvary Road. They'll celebrate the fact that in the hospital bed, with 80% burns on his body, severe gasoline burns, that he woke up in heaven with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he had accepted God's salvation. Stay with me. Imagine you live this life in luxury. You never have pain. You never have a toothache. Nothing bad ever happens to you. No kind of evil, no kind of difficulties. You have perfect children, a perfect wife, a perfect house. You drive the perfect car. Nothing ever goes wrong. So when her comes and knocks on your door and says, Hi, here, I'm from Lighthouse Baptist Church. I'm bringing you good news of God's salvation. You've got a sin problem, and Jesus Christ has provided the solution. And you say, No, thank you. <laughs> I don't need God. I'm going to be just fine. Hey, you've got a sin problem. I don't care how perfect the life appears to be. You are the enemy of God. I'm going to do an interesting study sometime. Do a study about who is the enemy of God. The person that's rejected Christ's salvation is the enemy of God. And God is going to put down all his enemies. And you, you live this life in luxury. You bring your children into the room and say, Today... I'm going to die. I'm going to close my eyes and go off out into eternity. And you go out into eternity in the most peaceful fashion. You just schedule the day and you close your eyes and take your last breath and say to your heart, I have lived a good life, now just stop breathing. Just stop beating, just lungs, stop breathing. Imagine you had the power to do that. And you went out into eternity just as peaceful as anyone possibly could. And then you woke up on fire. And you realize there's going to be no 911 call. There's going to be no burn center. There's, no going to be, there's not going to be any amount of drugs or hospital staff that is going to attain to your wounds. And you're burning for all eternity. Imagine the horror of that. We, last week, when I shared with you Pastor Corey's story, I could see on your face the horror of thinking what it would be like to be on fire for a moment. Imagine what it is going to be without Christ to be on fire for all eternity. But if you're without Christ, that is exactly your future. I beg you to flee the wrath to come. If you are a Christian, you know Christ as your Savior. That is the future 
of those that you know and that you love who have refused to come to Jesus Christ. And the history in Genesis, the history in Joshua, and the history in Esther chapter 9 tells us that God's judgment is certain. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. You're here this morning. You're a Christian. You know Jesus Christ is your Savior. But there is somebody that you're concerned about. You say, Preacher, I'm burdened for someone. They do not know you as their Savior. They, they, they certainly do not understand the severity of the wrath to come. But I do. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for them. I'm going to pray for them this morning. I'm going to continue to witness to them. I'm going to continue to live my life as best I can so that they don't say, to me, you seem as one that mocked. Preacher, would you pray for me? God, help me to live that kind of life and be a witness to them. And I will pray for you this morning. Okay. All right. Yes. Some of you are praying for loved ones. Some of you are praying for a family. Some of you are praying for a husband or wife. I understand that. I understand that. Yes. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for Christians who are burdened, burdened for the lost. And I pray that they would not be like Lot, but they would be like faithful Noah. And they would continue to proclaim your goodness and your grace and your salvation. The world has a problem. It's called sin. And we thank you for providing the solution on Calvary's cross. We thank you for that in Jesus Christ's name. Every head and every head, every head bowed. Every eye closed. You say this morning, Preacher, I do not know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I am not on my way to heaven. I have not embraced the solution for sin, the blood of Jesus Christ. I am lost on my way to that hellfire you spoke about just a moment ago. And I can't imagine the horror. Preacher, today I want to flee the wrath to come. Would you pray for me? I'm not saved. I need to be saved. Would you pray for me? Slip your hand up. Hold it up for just a moment. Let me remember you in prayer. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for this one who's raised their hand. They've indicated they do not know they're on their way to heaven. They have not applied the solution for sin. That on the first verse of this, of the invitation hymn, that they would step out and come and allow me or someone else to take a Bible and show them from your word the solution for sin. We thank you for providing the solution. We're thankful that Rahab availed herself to that. And I pray others would do that today, this morning right now as well. We pray and praise you in Christ's name. Let's stand to our feet. The piano is playing. The altar is open.